And if the rest of you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, it is a most tremendous privilege when we step back and think about it that you invite us to speak to you. And not only do you invite us to speak to you in prayer, you actually speak to us. And so again, it is our prayer um, that you would Help us to hear what you have to say, that as we consider these two interwoven stories, uh, that you would give us a vision, give us an awareness of what you are calling us to, uh, and that we would see Jesus more clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as Brent already mentioned, we in these last uh, Five weeks or so have been kind of on this journey where we have been working through one section of the Gospel of Mark, the section that comes from the moment that Jesus enters Jerusalem, which is what we're of course celebrating this morning, Palm Sunday, to the moment that Jesus goes to the cross. And we're really at the final part of the story before we move into the Passion narrative. The very next verses after the verses that we just read are Jesus at the Last Supper, where it's moving towards the cross more explicitly. And in these last moments where Jesus is at Jerusalem, before we move into that Thursday night where everything really starts to go into motion, Mark gives us two stories side by side. Perhaps he notices. They're, they're, they're stories that are really interwoven. This is something that Mark will do. Uh, you might remember a few weeks ago we had the story of, of the temple of Jesus kind of cleansing the temple, and we have the story of the cursing of the fig tree. And Mark is putting those together because we're meant to realize these two actually explain each other. 
And so the question that we're meant to be asking as we look at these two stories, the story of the woman anointing Jesus and the story of Judas betraying Jesus, is why? Why are these two stories put together? What does God intend for us to see by the juxtaposition of these two different events? So I want that question to be in the back of your mind, and let's, let's, first, let's first consider some of the story of Judas. Judas is perhaps one of the most famous figures in all of Scripture uh, for, for all the wrong reasons. He's almost synonymous. The name Judas Iscariot is almost a synonym for, for traitor. But it's, it's probably important for us to remember that before, Jesus, before Judas was despicable, he actually was admirable. Before he was Judas the traitor, he was Judas the apostle. Imagine if you knew Judas a few years before the events took place. Maybe you're a co-worker, and at the end of the day, Judas takes you aside and says, I want you to know I'm not coming into work tomorrow. And that's surprising to you because he's working very consistently. And you ask why, and he says, well, there's this man. Um, he's this teacher. His name's Jesus. Perhaps you've heard about him. And he is unlike anyone I've ever seen. Uh, you should see the things that he does this man, I'm convinced, is from God. I, I'm convinced this is an important person, and I'm going to go learn from him. And, and, and I, I want you to take care, to keep an eye out for my wife and for my kids, because I don't know how long it will be before I return. Judas was someone who was convinced of the greatness of Jesus, and he, just like Levi, just like Peter, just like John, he left everything to follow Jesus. And it's not like he was like the, the, the outcast among the disciples. He was not the one the disciples voted most likely to betray Jesus. He was not the one that everyone thought, this guy's a little bit off. He was, he was beloved. He was a part of the group. In fact, not only was he a part of the group, but he was appointed one of the inner circle, right? One of the twelve. And even among the twelve, he seemed to be so respected that they gave him an important role. He was elected the treasurer. He was trusted. He was admired. He was a friend of Jesus. And as a friend of Jesus, he, he got to experience some remarkable things. I mean, you and I both sometimes wonder, what would it be like to be walking with Jesus, to know him face to face while he was on earth? Well, jo Judas knew the answer to that. Judas was one of the people who took five loaves and two fish, and after Jesus commanded, started, started passing out baskets upon baskets and being amazed at what just took place. Judas was one of the people who was in the boat terrified and seeing Jesus stand and command the waves and they stopped. Judas was sensed by Jesus and he, like the other apostles, went from house to house telling people, Jesus is the king and he's here. And, and he even cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He even anointed and bringing healing. He experienced the power of Jesus through his very own body. And yet, we have to conclude that even as Judas experienced all of this, as Judas was a devoted follower of Jesus at one point, the events of our passage tell us that something happened. Somewhere along the line, we can only assume Judas began to be disappointed, that, that he, he found himself in a situation that was not what he hoped it would be. 
Maybe he had expected the religious leaders to honor Jesus so that Judas himself could experience the respectability and, and honor amongst these people. Maybe he experienced, expected Jesus to, to be more powerful in the way he dealt with Rome, leading Israel into a place of greater glory. Whatever it was, I think you could say that Judas expected following Jesus to feel more awesome. I think we can understand that feeling, can't we? I mean, there was, there was a grind to following Jesus. It, 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 there's a grind to being away from home for month after month, for having to depend on other people's hospitality, not knowing where you're going to sleep, not knowing where you're going to find food. There was a grind and I was having to be traveling and walking and just listening and listening and listening some more. And, and at some point, I think Judas perhaps began to start feeling almost irritated with Jesus, as if he, what Jesus was doing was something that would grate on Judas. Like, why does Jesus always have to be so disrespectful to these religious leaders that Judas was raised to treat with honor? Why, why does Jesus have to keep on saying things that are so offensive, like you have to eat my body, you have to drink my blood for eternal life? Why does he do that? Why does Jesus keep on talking about going to his death and saying that we have to follow him? When, when a person who follows Jesus turns away, it, it doesn't happen all at once. That's not how Satan works. Satan almost always is playing the long game. He, he, he drives this wedge between the person and Jesus, so it moves from confusion to maybe doubt, from doubt to irritation, and from irritation to maybe almost contempt towards Jesus. And I think that's the progression that Judas went through. At some point, Judas weighed things up, and maybe he wasn't even deeply aware, but he was starting to ask the question, is this worth it? Which is maybe another way of just asking the question, is Jesus worth it? Is, is Jesus worth this dishonor, this grind, this frustration? Is Jesus worth it? This is one of the fundamental temptations that, that comes to every believer at one point or another, if not repeatedly. Jesus himself warns about this. If you think about it, Jesus says that anyone who wants to be my disciple is going to have to count the cost. When he's speaking of that in the Gospel of Luke, he says, you must renounce all that is yours if you wish to be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is saying in that moment, unless I am worth everything to you, you will conclude that I am not worth it at all. And that's a decision that we see many people who have, who have moved astray. That's a conclusion many have come to. There's this little story that it's easy to miss of, of the man by the name of Demas. 
Demas was someone that Paul, when he's writing to Philemon, you know how in the letters at the very end they kind of mention people, said, my, my partner Demas says hello. This was someone who worked alongside of Paul, who was a faithful follower, and yet five years later, when Paul is writing to Timothy from prison, he's saying, you know that Demas has deserted me. Why? Because he was in love with this world. Demas made the calculus, and he realized to himself that Jesus was not worth it compared to what the world would offer him. Before we condemn Judas, it is important for us to understand Judas and to understand that the temptation that he experienced and eventually succumbed to is the temptation we know. The question, is Jesus worth it? We know how the decision is set up for him. It's told us at the very beginning of our passage. The chief priests, the religious leaders are looking for a way to, to arrest Jesus, but they, they can't because there's so many people and they know if they arrest him in broad daylight, there will be riots because he's popular. And the question is, how are we going to do this? And we know where it's going to go and we know what Judas is going to do. But before we get to that moment, Mark interrupts the story with another story. An extraordinary, unusual event that takes place. So we find ourselves now in the, at the dinner table of Simon the leper and Bethany, friends of Jesus. This dinner table is something that's really low because people were reclining. That's how they would do it at the time. And also the tradition was that men would eat with men, women would eat with women. So you can just imagine Jesus and his disciples and Simon and some of the other guys all kind of lying on one elbow, grabbing food and, and talking with each other and enjoying this conversation together. And then something happens that causes everyone to go silent. Perhaps Jesus doesn't even see it because it's probably she's coming from behind Jesus, but quickly this woman walks in with this beautiful white alabaster jar. And, and, and too impatient to even try to get the wax off the top, she takes it and breaks it against the stone wall so that the top is broken off, and immediately she takes this jar and she turns it over over Jesus' head and this perfume flows down on his head, perhaps to his surprise, and suddenly this odor fills the room and there are a couple gasps of astonishment because at least a couple of people recognize what this smell they're smelling is. It is pure nard, which means probably next to nothing to us. But, but do you notice how, how Mark, who is a person of normally very few words, wants to describe it in detail with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. This is valuable stuff. Nard could only be received from the, the mountains, the Himalayan mountains. That's, that's where this stuff was coming from. It was from thousands of miles away, and it was worth thousands upon thousands of dollars. It was described as basically a year's wages worth. Imagine your year's salary. Now imagine all of that being poured onto Jesus' head in a moment. That's what took place here. And you can understand the disciples' immediate reaction. What? What just happened? What are you doing? 
this is so valuable. Couldn't you have sold this and given it to the poor? And that seems like such a pious and righteous question, right? I mean, if it's a year's wages, then think about the orphans in Cavillon. That's enough to support almost all of the orphans for an entire year in Cavillon. That would be such a good use for it. And so the disciples, their, their instincts seem right except for two things. One is, it's interesting to me how generous they like to be with someone else's money. Um, in fact, I think Jesus actually points that out when he says, why do you trouble our season? So you ha always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Uh, like, I think the undercurrent is, I'm appreciative of how much you care about the poor, and I look forward to you giving some gifts to them soon. But there's something else that's even more to the point here. What is it that they say? Why was the ointment wasted like that? What a waste this was, they say. Do you see what they're saying? This might have been worth it for the poor, but Jesus isn't worth it. It's a waste to do something so extravagant for him. And this, this is the fundamental difference between the disciples in that moment and this woman. Because this woman did not think it was a waste. Now we can understand why the disciples would think it was a waste because if we step back for a moment, this, this decision just seems irrational. I mean, there's nothing about it really that makes sense. We've already said it was a very costly thing that this woman did. Almost every scholar says there is no way that this person would have been able to afford purchasing this herself. Almost certainly it was a gift from some wealthy person that might have even been a family heirloom that was passed down from one person to another, kind of like an expensive painting that you were given one time that every time neighbors come in you want to show because this is your prized possession. It is not an exaggeration to say that her entire financial net worth probably was poured out on Jesus' head in that moment. And not only was it costly, but this was, this was social suicide. I mean, this is a small town where everyone knows everything, and what she just did was completely not done. You don't break into this men's dinner and do something like this. She will always be known as that weird lady who did that from now on. And, and, and how... Impractical is this decision really? So often when we're talking about what it means to follow Christ, we speak of, of the benefit we gain from it, right? When we read Scripture, it changes the way we see things. When we obey, we know there's wisdom that's given. When we come to church, that strengthens us. When we pray, we experience answers to prayer. But what does this woman get from doing this? More to the point, what does Jesus get from this? I mean, when we give charitably, we oftentimes try to think, how do I invest wisely so there can be a good return on investment? What is the return on investment here? The moment that that perfume is poured out, it starts evaporating, and in just a short while, it will be nothing more than a memory. If you were to kind of weigh this on the balance sheet, talking about pros and cons, this does not make sense. There is no calculus that would justify this for the woman except one thing. She was utterly convinced that Jesus is absolutely worth it, that he is worthy of this extravagant gift. 
Like Judas, we don't know all the details, but we can only assume that over time this woman has heard Jesus' teaching, seen his miracles, maybe has even firsthand experienced his kindness, and she has gone from admiration and awe to love. And she has found herself compelled by this desire simply to give, to give him honor, to give him everything that she can give because she has concluded he is worthy. You know, there is, in Revelation, there's this scene where all of creation and all of the redeemed church sing this song to Jesus. And the song they sing is, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and blessing and wisdom and wealth and power and glory. Worthy. Jesus, you are worth it. This is not them saying, Jesus, we will give you things because you give us stuff. No, it's nothing like that. It's saying, because of who you are, Jesus, and because of what you, do, you have done, you are worthy of everything. And that really is what worship is. The, the word that we have, worship, the English word is actually originally from the idea of worth Ship. It is what we ascribe worth to. And this woman has ascribed worth to Jesus. You are worthy, and I give you everything. And it seems that somehow this moment is the catalyst for Judas. It's not clear why. Maybe it's because of how when Jesus responds, he is favorable towards what she has done, and Judas might be irritated again that Jesus would think this was a good thing. Or, or it could even just be there's something about the purity of this woman's act that exposes Judas and, and alerts him to the reality that that is not how he thinks of Jesus. But whatever the reason, immediately after we read, in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas has done the calculus. And he has decided he would rather have the respectability of being admired by the chief priests. He would rather have the 30 pieces of silver. He would rather have a life free from the grind of following Jesus. He would rather because he has concluded that Jesus is not worth it. And, and a tragic decision it is. We know this because, on one hand, we know even Judas comes to, to recognize this. Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew does, that, that later on he comes to recognize that what he has done is an awful thing, that he has misprized Jesus. He tries to give the money back. He tries to undo it, and he realizes he's too late, and he puts an end to his life. He is filled with regret. And Jesus himself has warns of the consequences of this. Just a few verses later, in 14 verse 21, he will say, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Forever after, Judas will be defined by this one decision that Jesus was not worth it. Forever after, Judas is now known as Judas the betrayer. But his is not the only legacy that remains forever because of one decision. Again, if we look at both of these, we see that both of them have an ongoing legacy. Did you notice how, how Jesus responds to this woman's gift? The very last thing he says in verse 9 about it says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I cannot think of a single moment in all of the Gospels where Jesus honors someone more highly than he does here. Anytime the Gospel, the Gospel of me, the King, is proclaimed, so also will she. And of course he's right because we are doing it right now. It's like Jesus takes this woman and lifts her up and says, behold, look, see this. And, and what does he want us to see well, how does he describe this? He say, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. This, this act is a beautiful thing. Why is it beautiful? He explains in a little bit. He says, you will always have the poor. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. Literally, all that she has, she has done. All that she has, whatever has been in her capacity, she has done. It's very similar to what Jesus says about the widow. Do you remember the one who gave two half pennies? And Jesus says she gave more because what she had, she gave. Which, which shows us that what Jesus is admiring in this moment is not how posh this experience is, how, how wonderful the perfume is. It's not how valuable the gift is, but how much the gift giver values Jesus that causes him to delight in it. Jesus is saying, she has given me everything. She has considered me worthy of everything, and that is beautiful to me which is a wonderful thing to consider. That Jesus doesn't look at the perfection and expecting the highest quality. When, when people in their weakness give themselves to Jesus, when we give ourselves to Jesus in all of our messiness, Jesus looks and says, that is beautiful. The Son of God, the one who created us, says that is beautiful, that is so good. I said at the very beginning, I think we should recognize that these two stories are intentionally put together. They are juxtaposed to give us an understanding. And not only that, but they're at a very pivotal moment. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross. And I believe that what we are given here is these two stories because they are meant to communicate to us the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus. There will be a time or maybe multiple occasions when it will occur to you that, that following Jesus is not getting you what you want. 
at least not in that moment. And you will be faced with a decision. You will find yourself perhaps tempted to give yourself to something else that seems more promising, whether it is to career, whether it is to comfort, whether it is to security. You will find yourself with this decision. Even if I never get what I'm wanting in this life, even if the remainder of this life is a road of suffering, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it not because of what I might receive from him in this life, but simply because who he is and of what he has done? Is Jesus worth it? What, what this twofold story tells us is what Jesus has already said. Either Jesus needs to be worth everything to us, or we will eventually find ourselves concluding that Jesus is not worth it at all. That is the decision that Judas came to, that tragic decision. But Jesus says for those who forsake all because of me, that is a beautiful thing to me. Listen, there is, there is no choice that you make that will give you greater dignity. There is no course of action that will fill your lives with greater meaning. There is no decision you make that could be more beautiful, more good than offering yourself wholly and completely in worship to Jesus. Because Jesus is worth it. In, in the Passover, it's a tradition that's celebrated by Jews even today. There's a song that is frequently sung during the Passover entitled Dayenu, uh, which literally means it would have been enough. And, and what happens is there will oftentimes be a recounting of the story of Exodus. If God had only done this part, if he'd only done the 10 plagues, if he'd only brought us out of Egypt, that would have been enough. If he'd only parted the Red Sea, that would have been enough. If he'd only given the 10 plagues, each of those would have been enough for him to be our God and for us to praise him, but he has done so much more. If, if it were just the fact that Jesus is the Son of God through whom this world is created, that would have been enough. That would be enough for him to be worthy of everything. If it were just the fact that he became one of us to show us who God is, that would have been enough for us to give him ourselves without remainder. But we know he has done more. What does Jesus say this anointing is? I don't think the woman realizes it, that this is what she's doing, but he says, this is an anointing for my burial because I'm about to die. Jesus, the Son of God, who is worthy of all worship, gives himself to us without 
remainder, that he might bring us to him. That is more than enough. As I've been reflecting on this passage, the prayer that I have found myself praying, and maybe this is a prayer that you can find yourself praying as well, is, Lord, let me be like this ointment. Let me be to you a gift where I give myself and worship to Jesus because that is what we are made for. That is the beautiful thing we were created for because Jesus is worth it. He is our King and He is our Savior and He is worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. And I invite you even now to join with me in a time of prayer. Um, We have a time both where we can corporately confess an awareness of how we are not yet giving ourselves as we desire to, but then also a time of quiet confession where we can pray more specifically for how God has been speaking to us through this passage. So would you please turn your bulletins to where we have that community confession of sin, and we will together confess our sins where the prince is bold. Our Lord and King, together, we confess that in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands, we have disobeyed you. We have failed to give you the honor and worship that you deserve as our King and as our God. We have bowed before idols of our own making and served the creature rather than the Creator. Would you please spend some time in silent confession? Deliver us, Lord, together, and forgive us only by the blood and merits of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.